Well, I would ask you, take your Bibles and open them to the book of Titus. I know that we are studying Acts, but we're had a little break over the summer, and I usually try to do something in, in, the, in the fall just to kind of set the table for the fall, and I thought Titus would be a good book to study. It's three chapters. It will actually help us as we study the book of Acts. It will help us keep Acts in perspective because, uh, uh, you know, Titus occurs in the whole context of the unfolding of Acts. This is one of Paul's missionary journeys. On his third journey, he made his way into Crete, and, and when he was leaving Crete, he left Titus there to finish the work of establishing the church. And, uh, and so in studying this, we get a little insight into the ministry of Paul and, and what he did. But I also think it's important for us maybe to take a moment to understand the church. We're beginning, when we get, when we get back into Acts, we're going to begin to start looking at uh, the expansion of the church into the world. And we'll hear terms like the church or the expansion or the, the movement. And, and yet it's not totally defined what the church is in Acts. But here we get a wonderful snapshot of Paul and what he wanted for this church in Crete. And I think it's helpful for us uh, every once in a while to kind of tune ourselves, tune our church to the scriptures. And, uh, and there are things spoken of here that I think are timely for us to say, okay, Let's be reminded of what the church is. Let's be reminded of why we exist. Let's be reminded of what we should be focusing on. And, and so I think it's just helpful for us across the board just to, to study this wonderful book. Three chapters. We'll be in it for a few weeks, and then we'll jump back into Acts. So today we're going to look just at the first four verses, and I'm going to read them to you. And then, uh, and then I'll pray, and we'll jump into our study here. Titus chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus... My true child, in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray together. Thank you, God, now for the privilege we have of being in and under your word. It is the authority by which we tune all of our thought and thinking. And and so, God, may it do that for us today. May it transform us. May it encourage us. May it build us up. May it cause us to be more like Jesus. Thank you, God, for these few moments. Help us to focus, to hear what you have to say. In Christ's name, amen. In uh, 2009, the prominent atheist, Richard, uh, Richard Dawkins, those of you who know Richard Dawkins, he did a campaign in London, England called the Atheist Bus Campaign. The Atheist Bus Campaign was his way of countering Christians who were putting uh, Bible verses on buses. And so he said, all right, here's what we're going to do. We're going to put a slogan on buses. So we got a bunch of rich people, rich atheists, to contribute to put signs on buses all throughout England. They're still doing this today. And, uh, in fact, here's a picture of one of the buses. There's one of the signs. Can you read it there? 
there's probably no God. Now stop worrying and enjoy your life. How's that for a sign? There's probably no God. I'm kind of certain that there is no God, right? You see that sign and you go, huh, interesting. There's probably no God. I'm sure that got your attention. Well, I went and was trying to figure out why did they word it that way. So I was looking for some literature that they had written on it, and I found some literature in which they explain why they say there's probably no God. And here's what they say. Well, we cannot categorically disprove the existence of God. It's impossible. God could exist. Therefore, intellectual honesty requires us to say there probably is no God. <laughs> right? Wow. That's, that's a whole other sermon, right? You're banking your life on that? Okay, anyways. There's probably no God. But what actually gets my attention in that statement, besides just the craziness of that thought, that they're not even certain about their own belief, is the last part of the saying. So stop worrying and enjoy your life. Now, whether you know it or not, that is the ethics of atheism. Atheism has an ethic to it. And the ethic of atheism is this. There is no God. Therefore, do what you want to do. Do what feels good. Enjoy your life. In fact, you'd say it this way. Live in the moment. There's no other accountability. All you have is this moment, so live in it. It's the atheist ethic. Now, you might say, is it really the atheist ethic? It is the atheist ethic. In fact, just to kind of build on this a little bit, to illustrate it even further, when I was probably 14 years old or something like that, 12 or 14, uh, a song came out on the radio. And in fact, uh, today it's considered the third best rock and roll song ever written. Okay? And if you look at the charts... And they say, what are the top, you know, 100 rock and roll songs? This one always is number three. Came out when I was somewhere 12 to 14 years of age. It was the song Imagine by John Lennon. Right? The song Imagine. Half of you are singing it in your head right now, right? (laughs) Half of you are going, I have no idea what it is, okay? But if you're you're singing it in your head, I'm sorry for introducing it. And we're not done introducing songs. I'm going to introduce another song in a minute here. I'm going to drive you nuts with this. But it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very, uh, what I would say, describes very well the atheist ethic. Listen to this song. Here are the lyrics. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us. Above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Right? There it is. Living for the moment. Imagine there's no country It isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or to die for, and no religion to. Imagine all the people living life in peace. You may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us, and the world will be as one. See? If we could get rid of God, we could get rid of this stuff. We get rid of all of this. And in fact, his vision of this is even grander, because he goes on. Imagine no possessions. I wonder if you can. No need for greed or hunger. A brotherhood of man. Imagine all the people sharing all the world. You may say, I'm a dreamer. I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will be as one. You see the ethic? 
Imagine there's no God, there's no heaven, there's no hell, there's no afterlife, there's no country, there's no laws, there's no rules, there's no boundaries. All that would be there is a brotherhood of man sharing everything. What an ethic, right? Now, a little side note here for you. Do you know what is considered the fifth best rock and roll song ever written? Don't Google it, okay? The fifth best rock and roll song ever written. It's all connects, don't worry. It's the song by the Beatles. John Lennon was part of the Beatles, right? Paul McCartney wrote this song. But it was a Beatles song, and the song is Hey Jude. Go ahead, I'm letting you sing it. When you get to the na, 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 just raise your hand, and then I know you're there in the song, okay? Hey Jude. Now, do you know what the song Hey Jude is about? The song Hey Jude is a song written by Paul McCartney to the son of John Lennon, Julian Lennon. You see, John Lennon believed this ethic that he wrote in the song Imagine. And that ethic was do what makes you feel good. Live in the moment, right? We're going to get rid of all the constraints. There are no boundaries anymore. And all that's left is what I want to do. And now I'm going to do it. And that's freedom. And so he did it. And you know what he did? He left his wife. And he went with this girl, Yoko Ono. And he walked away from everything. And his son, Julian, was destroyed by it. Tore up his life to such a degree that Paul McCartney writes a song and says, Hey, Jude, hang in there. Hang in there. You'll get through it. I know this is horrible for you right now, but just hang in there. Why? Because the atheist ethic promotes selfishness, promotes greed, promotes ungodliness. When you remove all those constraints, you don't have a brotherhood of man, do you? You have unbridled selfishness to such a degree that a man would destroy his wife and his child so that he could be over here to serve his own pleasure and his own lust. And his son is destroyed to such a degree that a friend has to write a song to him and say, hang in there, man. You'll get through it, Jude. You'll get through it. See, the atheist ethic doesn't work. Now, why am I talking about this? The book of Titus is written by Paul to a man named Titus. Titus is in Crete. And Titus has a job to establish this church in Crete. To establish this church to understand that there is a God in heaven who's promised salvation to the world. And when those people trust in the work of the Messiah, they get changed and transformed and they become godly. And when they become godly, they get set free from all the selfishness that the ethics of the atheism and paganism brings. And they get to be delivered out of the world of John Lennon and Julian Lennon and Paul McCartney and all that world that they were, you get delivered out of that world into a place of life. And Titus has to establish this church so that it would live this way. So that it would have that kind of impact in the world. 
that it would show itself as a counter world, that it would stand up and say, this is how we, as those who have been redeemed by Christ, view marriage. This is how we, who have been redeemed by Christ, view our children. This is how we, who have been redeemed by Christ, understand this world and how we're going to engage and how we're going to love and how we're going to forgive and how we're going to do these kinds of things. This is how we stand and show the light of the gospel in this world that holds to the ethics of John Lennon and Richard Dawkins and the atheist bus campaign and all of that, we get to stand differently. Titus is about establishing a church to show the world something different. That's what this book is about. It's not about just establishing a church to be a church. It's about establishing a church to make disciples of Jesus who reflect the true freedom and the true hope and the true peace that comes in Christ. So we're going to study this book. We're going to see some wonderful things. In fact, there are some themes that emerge in the book of Titus. Let me give them to you here real quick. And the themes are this. The first theme that shows up a lot in the book of Titus is, is, is simply doing what is good. I just pulled it right out of the text. This book focuses on what it means and how to actually live a godly life. Right? The message of Titus is not just do what you want, stop worrying, enjoy your life. It's saying actually you can be transformed, you can live a different life, you can actually do what's good in this world. You can actually do what's good. It's the second theme that emerges, salvation. Salvation emerges. What is true salvation? And that shows up quite frequently in this book. It's powerful. It gives us an understanding of what the real transformation is to come when someone trusts in Christ. Another theme that emerges is self-control. Self-control, it shows up. Because you see, when you're under the control of Christ, then you're no longer following the impulses of the flesh, which is what paganism does and atheism does. Right? Paganism is about getting rid of self-control, following the lusts of the flesh. This is saying, no, you can actually be set free because when you follow the lust of the flesh, it's bondage. It's bondage. And finally, teaching is a key part of this book. Teaching. What do you mean? He's saying one of the ways that we are transformed is when we understand the Word of God and how it unfolds. And so it's a key part of the book as to why we expose ourselves to teaching. Okay, so those are some of the themes. Now, what we're going to do today, we're just going to look, with the remainder of our time, we're going to look at this letter, and we're just going to treat it as a letter. So our outline is simple. We're going to see who this letter is from. We're going to see who this letter is to. Just pretty simple stuff. And, uh, and we're going to get an understanding of really the heartbeat of this letter. In this introduction, we're going to really see the heart of what Paul wants for this church. And so we're going to do that by seeing who it's from and who it's to, and uh, my heart for us as we engage these four verses here today is that we would understand not only this letter of Titus, but that we'd understand really the heartbeat of Christianity. I hope it kind of lays that out for us here in clear and simple manner. But let's begin. Let's see who it's from. I kind of have this broken down this way. We're going to see who it's from. We're going to see what he's writing about, what he does, and, and, and why he does it. We're going to see it all unfold this way, kind of the who, what, why of the letter. Let's look at who wrote it. Notice it says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle 
of Jesus Christ. So we know it's Paul. We studied Paul before in Acts chapter 9. He gets saved. Paul was a Pharisee. He hated God. Hated Jesus. He thought he loved God, but it turns out he was actually fighting against God. He didn't believe Jesus was the Messiah, that he had died and rose from the dead. And when he came face to face with the resurrection, resurrected Messiah, he said, man, I believe. And he was all in for the kingdom. In fact, notice how all in he was. He calls himself a servant of God. The word there is kind of watered down a little bit. If you have like some of the older translations, you might see the word bondservant or bond slave. We've kind of taken the slave term out of this, but actually it is a slave. You know, in the, in the uh, Roman culture, slavery was part of the culture. And there was a season where slaves could be set free. They weren't forever uh, in the service of their master. So after a period of time, a slave could be set free. If a slave was set free, some could say, man, I really like being a servant to this master here. And so they could willingly put themselves back into the service of their master. It's called a bond servant. It means that they would say, I don't want to leave you. I want to be your servant for the rest of my life. So they would get a little uh, piercing in their ear. They would take a little awl and just kind of bop, whack it and give them a little hole in their ear. And, uh, and that was the mark that they were forever in the service of their master. Paul uses this phrase to describe himself. I think the imagery is what captures him. God set me free, and now I am willingly going back in the service of him for the rest of my life. That's who I am, man. I am about serving God all in. I want to be defined as a servant, a bondservant, a slave of God. Right? That's his heartbeat, man. He willingly serves. That's how he wants to be defined. I love that definition. It's a challenge for me. Because every time I read that, I think, man, that's just, I want to be defined that way, you know? It's a powerful way to be defined. But he goes on. He's not only a servant of God, a bond servant, a bond slave. He's an apostle. Let me give you a little uh, uh, lesson on the word apostle, because it's going to show up in Acts. Theologians sometimes use this, this delineation of, of the word apostle. There's big A apostle and little a apostle. A big A apostle was one of the 12, plus Paul, or one of the 13, you'd say. This was a term used to describe the, the, the ones that God had said, you get to establish the church, you become the arbiters of what is right and wrong, you guys are getting divine revelation, you get to approve everything. You're the big A apostle. But throughout the book of Acts, the word apostle is also used for women and other people. Barnabas, and there's some women who get the term apostle, and they call them little A apostles. And the reason why they use the term little A's, they're not saying they're all part of that 12. It isn't that that number's growing. That 12's a special group. But there are people, the word apostle just means sent, and there were people who were sent. There were women who were sent on mission. There were men who were Barnabas is called an apostle. He's going out on mission. And, and the idea is that there were some that had a spiritual gift or a spiritual calling to go, to leave, to go take the gospel out. So sometimes you see apostle being used in little a, meaning somebody who's just being sent, sometimes big A. In this case, it's big A. Paul is saying, I'm an apostle. I'm one of the leaders. The reason why he would identify himself this way is he's making the point that what I am writing isn't my opinion. When I read this, and when I see, especially as he says, an apostle, I'm not just reading something that 
Paul was just writing for Titus and that's all. I'm saying this is the will of God for his church. What is in Titus is us. God established these guys to tell the church how to operate until Christ returns. And that's what we have here. And so these words here aren't just suggestions. They're the marching orders from God himself. The orders by which we are called to live. The military, they have a thing. Air Force, we had a thing which was like the orders of the day. All branches have some form of this. And so when you were, had to do, you know, our guard duty, you'd get your orders, and the orders would tell you what you were supposed to do. And if you didn't follow the orders of the day, you got in trouble because that's what you were measured by for, your, for, that, for that shift. <clears throat> in this case, this is the order for the church. This is God's heart. And we've got to take that to heart as we look at it here. Okay, so this is who's writing it. Now let's look at what Paul does. He defines himself here. Okay, he keeps going because he says he's a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Notice, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. I think God gifted Paul not only as an apostle and a missionary, but I think God also gifted him with the ability of the longest run-on sentences ever. Punctuation would be helpful. Right? This guy, this guy writes long. This is like one of the, and this isn't even the whole sentence. Right? I just cut it off here. This is a long sentence, but there's a lot. It's power-packed in here. He says this, I'm a servant. I'm a slave of God. I'm an apostle of Jesus. And here's what I do. I'm about the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. Two things. Faith and knowledge. Now here's what he's saying. What does he mean, faith of God's elect? Well, let's kind of take the God's elect part first, and then we'll look at the faith part. You know, when a person places their faith in Jesus, from their perspective, they they heard some form of a message and they responded. But they had no idea all the stuff that God had done ahead of time to bring them to that point. They had no idea how God was controlling the events and putting them in the right place and how God was removing their stony, hard hard heart and giving them a soft heart that would actually be not rejecting of the gospel and how God was changing their mind to begin to understand things and that God was opening their eyes to begin to see the glory of Christ. God does all of this work and then places the right person at the right time and that person shares Christ with them and they respond. Now, from their perspective, they just said, well, I heard a message and I believed it. From God's perspective, a whole bunch of things happened. Now, God is, or Paul is saying this. The response of faith is a response of trust. I hear this message, I believe, and I trust in it. Okay? And he's saying, God's at work in people's lives. My job is to build up the faith of the ones that God is working on. God's at work. He's pouring out this work. He's doing all of this stuff. And what I want to do is I want to provide the things that they need to have their faith built. Because faith isn't like a blind trust. Faith is an actually a knowing trust. You hear this message. You, you, you're convinced of it. And Paul is saying, I want, you to, I want these people to know more. Now he goes on in his sentence, and the next thing he says unpacks it even more. For the faith of the elect... 
Then he says, the knowledge of the truth. The word knowledge there is the idea of experiential knowledge. Not just knowing something academically, knowing it experientially. Right? It's the difference between using Google Earth to figure out your path and actually driving the road itself. Okay? So, so he's saying, I, I want people to actually experience the things that they have heard about God. So much so that they would order their life by it. Whenever you see knowledge of the truth, you want one way you can unpack the fullness of that statement is saying people ordering their lives by what they know to be true. So here's an illustration. I've used it a lot here. I'll use it again. Let's say a big old pile of money was in the middle of this gym. Billions of dollars, right? Just everywhere. You couldn't even walk in the gym. It's just right here, filling up the whole gym. And it's legitimate money. It's real money. And I say, hey, everybody here in this room, we're going to divide it up equally. But as you can see, there's a lot because it's all in like 10s and 20s. Okay? So we got a lot of counting we got to do. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to just have a list of people. And, uh, and once we kind of get it all counted, you'll come on this day and you'll pick up your pile of cash. Now, if you believed that that was true and that you, you believed that I wouldn't steal the money and that this was really going to happen, and you knew that you were going to walk out with millions of dollars in cash next Friday, what would you do Monday morning? Would you quit your job? <laughs> would you buy a new car? Would you start Googling vacations in Hawaii? I guarantee you that you would do something Monday morning, right? I guarantee it. You're looking at me like you wouldn't. Like, no, I would just be praying about who I would give it to. And, you know, it wouldn't bother me at all. Just keep serving my, I'll tell my boss, I'll work without pay. Right? No, I know. You'd be thinking of something. Because that piece of information would dramatically change your life. And right away, you'd start making life-changing decisions decisions, at least in your brain. Paul is saying that's what the truth of God does. When you understand it, it radically transforms you. And how does it transform you? That's that last little phrase, which accords with godliness. So here's this point. I'm about building up your faith, man. I want you to know who God is. I want you to comprehend this truth. Because what happens is, this truth, once you begin to experience it in the way you live, makes you godly. It sets you free from all of the bondage that comes from John Lennon's imagined worldview. Right? His worldview puts you in bondage. His worldview destroyed his marriage. His worldview destroyed his child. This worldview destroyed even the band, the Beatles, people would even say. Destruction and pain came from that worldview. Godliness is what sets you free. And he's saying, this is what I'm about. I'm about building up the faith of those that God is working in. I'm about helping them experience the truth because truth will make them godly. And when you're godly, you're different. You're different in the way you view your spouse. You're different in the way you view your children. You're different in the way you view the world. You're a different person completely. This is what Paul's ministry is about. This is what the church is about. The church is supposed to be a place 
through which Christ is exalted, God is exalted, and your life changes as a result. You're set free. This is what Titus has to make sure happens in this church. Now, we see Paul wrote this. We see his mission to build the faith and the knowledge so people would be transformed. But why does Paul do this? Why does he give himself this mission? Notice verse 2. In hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior. Now here's what he's saying. He's saying, I'm doing all this because I have the hope of eternal life. Richard Dawkins comes along and says, you want to enjoy your life? Remove God. There's probably no God. Enjoy your life. Stop worrying. Paul says, actually, there is a God. There is an eternal life. That is actually my hope. He's putting eternity back on the table, and he's saying, no, here's the reality. I have a hope that there's eternal life. And you want to know why I know there's this hope? Because God gave it to me. And what do I know about God? God never lies. And God had planned this eternal life in eternity past, before there was time. And then he says, but he now revealed it in his word. And I get to see it in his word. And this is why I preach and teach the word of God, because in that is where you get in touch with the eternal mind of God. And you can begin to see what God was thinking before creation. And God laid this out, and he says, and I have been commanded and entrusted by God, who's the Savior of the world, to preach this message. Because we have the hope of eternal life. So we stand today in the present, knowing that in the past, in eternity past, God said, I'll pull you in and you can be with me forever. And he revealed it in his word. And everything that we've seen in his word has come true. Because God doesn't lie. And because we have this hope that when we are translated from this state to the next state through death, there's eternal life. As a result, why don't we follow God now? Why don't we be set free from the bondage that Richard Dawkins and John Lennon has put the world in? Why don't we be set free from that? So this is Paul. This is who he wrote the letter. This is what he does. He's a servant. He's, he's God's apostle. He's the apostle of Jesus to build up our faith, to build up our understanding of the truth because God promised to bring us to heaven with him when we die. And he's revealed it in his word and we can learn about it there. Now let's look at who this letter is to. And then we'll wrap it up here. Very simple. Verse 4, to Titus, my true child in a common faith. Who is Titus? Titus was one of the guys that Paul discipled. He was a Greek. He was not Jewish. But yet Paul says, You're, we have a common faith. We both trust Jesus. One message for the nations. And he's somebody that Paul has discipled. And his job now is to carry out the wishes of Jesus for the church and to ensure that the church is structured in a way that would reflect what Paul's heart is, what his mission is. Notice he says grace and peace. I like to say it this way. 
favor and blessing. Grace is favor. It's the idea that God is pouring out favor upon you. And peace, they always saw that as a, a sense of like blessing, a sense that God would actually sustain you and, and bless you through the day, maybe endurance. And he's saying, may God just bless you, sustain you, keep you. Because God the Father, right, the one who willed all of this to happen, and Jesus the Messiah, who's the Savior, can provide you to stand in his grace and his peace. Okay. That's the introduction of this book. I'm going to give you some takeaways from it, and then let me kind of drive it home for us here, okay? Let me give you three takeaways we can get from this book and as we conclude and wrap this up. Takeaway number one, salvation is from God. He grants it, he gives it by his grace, and that's the good news. Think about it. We all have a list of people who we think are beyond redemption. But if salvation is from God, it's hope. It's good news. It's great news for the world. This is just the, the glorious gospel. But second thing I wanted to take away is salvation is meant to transform us so that we would live godly in this world. That's the piece sometimes we forget. Sometimes we think of grace in relation to sin, not in relation to godliness. We think of grace as being that thing that, oh, I sinned again, but it was a good thing that there's grace, which is true, but it's not the whole story. Grace is God saying, I'm going to be patient with you and pour out blessing because I'm in the process of conforming you into the image of my son, and that's why I give you grace so that eventually you would grow in your godliness. And that's what salvation is always about. Third takeaway, salvation is also the guarantee that we'll spend an eternity with God. So those are just some some theological takeaways we can get from this. But I want to go one step, maybe with a a bit of a story, a true story. It happened in in the Czech Republic when I was there a few weeks ago. And I want to share with you something that happened, an opportunity God gave me to share the gospel with somebody. Because this experience that I had highlights the importance of this message. It highlights the importance of the fact that, that in God... And in the godliness of God is the freedom we need to live in this world. And that the atheist's ethic is bondage. And the church is to stand as a counter message to the atheist's message. So I was on the train. We were going from Prague to Ostrava, getting ready to go to camp. Jeff Pearson and I are in this little cabin together looking at each other. and My legs are starting to hurt a little bit and... I say, Jeff, I'm going to get up and walk around a little bit. So I get up, I walk to the back of the train, and, um, and I was talking briefly to one of the train attendants in English, and this guy walks by, and, uh, and he turns around, and he's like, you're an American? And I said, yeah. He goes, high five me, and he poof, gives me a high five. And uh, he was a Czech guy in his mid-30s. So we start talking, and uh, I start learning about this guy. His name's David. And I find out that David is in his mid-30s, and he lives for the moment. So what do you do, David? I live for the moment. What does that mean? I just go. I meet girls. I live in their homes until they throw me out. And, uh, and then I go find another girl. And uh, so I say, well, where have you lived? Oh, I've lived in Ireland. I've lived in England. I've, I've you know, here and there, da 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 Every country in Europe, the guy, you know, has lived with a girl. Well, do you do work? Well, sometimes. What do you want to do with your life? Surf. I want to surf. 
I said, you're like in check, man. There's like no oceans. How do you surf in check, you know? He's like, well, you know, you got to go here. And he's telling me all the places you got to go to to surf. And that's why I ended up going to Ireland because there was good surfing there, I guess. And, and, uh, and so we start talking about his life. And, and, and this guy is this John Lennon song. In fact, this is why this song is in the sermon today is because I kept thinking of the song when I'm talking to the guy, living for the moment. And so uh, I say, tell me about your family. He's telling me a little bit about his family. And he tells me that his, you know, eventually it comes out that his parents were divorced. And I said, oh, how old were you when that happened? And he turns away from me, looks out the window, and he says, I will not talk about this. Get really agitated. The thoughts torment my mind, is what he said. The thoughts torment my mind. Wow. That's intense. Like, like, it, like the whole spirit changed from like happy-go-lucky surfer dude to oh, intensity. And I'm like, all right, this is the moment. Yes, gospel moment. And so I'm just standing there. And I'm like, okay, i got to say something to this guy. So I say, hey, i got a question for you. If I could give you a pill that could make this whole event of your parents' divorce go away, it never happened, it disappear, would you take it? And he turns around, he's looking at me like, what? You know, what are you talking about? I said, yeah, like, if I could just make it go away, boom, snap my fingers, it's gone. Would you do that? And he's thinking, I said, but remember, you're going to be a different person. Because that event impacted your life. So you'll be a different person. He's like, well, what would I be like? I said, I don't know. You could be worse. <laughs> he's like, yeah. You know, and I go, but you could be better. I don't know. You know, what do you think? He's like, I don't know. Well, I mean, he's just, he, I mean, we spent like 20 minutes as he's trying to figure this out. Would he want this to go away? And Finally, he goes, no, I don't want it to go away. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have it go away. I said, why? And he said, because I probably would be like the guy who split up my parents' marriage. And I don't want to be that guy. I said, interesting. I said, why do you think this very thing you didn't want to talk about a half hour ago is now the thing that you're wanting to hold on to? He goes, I don't know. Are you saying someone's watching out for me? I'm like, oh, what a softball. I said, yes. I go, yes. And he sent me here to talk to you. <laughs> I said, I'm a Christian, and I want to tell you about it. And he goes, oh, I don't want the church. Nope, the church was part of the split up of my parents' marriage. I want nothing to do with the church. I'm done with the church. And I'm like, well, I really, you know, those of you who were there in the back of the train, you heard him, right? He was a pretty, you know, verbal guy, you know. Oh, I don't want the church. And, and I said, uh, he goes, but then, oh, and then, are you ready? I never had a softball pitch this easily. Then he says, but if you could find a way to have God in my heart, I'd believe. <laughs> I was clueless. I didn't know what to say. No, I'm joking. <laughs> I've never heard this terminology before. No. And so we started talking about the gospel and Christ in his heart and getting a new heart and how he could be set free and that this type of thing doesn't work. and you know, I mean, it's just the, the Lord just opened the floodgates to share with this guy. And I'm telling you this story for a reason. You meet a guy like, if, if that guy walked by, you might just let him walk by. Right? In fact, you might have been scared of him a little bit by the way he looked. 
you know, reeked of alcohol and cigarettes and, and, and you know, you might have just went, oh, hide your kids, you know, you might have thought that. But the reality of the situation is that this worldview, the imagined worldview, the third best rock and roll song ever, as they say, has introduced to the world a mindset that is bondage. His living for the moment put him in bondage. He's got a string of girls that hate him. He can't even talk to his dad anymore. He loathes his mom. He hates the church. He's got nowhere to go in his life. He's got nothing. He's standing there completely empty, and all he carries with him is pain and misery in his heart. That's this guy. One guy on the back of a train. And I guarantee that there's probably a few more of them walking around downtown Sycamore, downtown DeKalb. The mission of Paul was to see the church expand with this message. That in Christ is godliness, transformation, change, freedom. Paul wants this church established so that it would be a beacon to the world And that it would show this world how we use money, how we use sex, how we use our our resources, how we view marriage, how we raise children, how a redeemed godly person lives in the exact same world. Only I can stand at the back of the train enjoying the scenery rather than looking out the window running from all the pain and misery of my life. Two guys on the back of a train, one in bondage, one in freedom. We have this message. The church is about proclaiming that message, living that message. As we study Titus, I'm praying that we would suddenly have an understanding of the freedom we've been granted in Jesus and the message of freedom that we get to bring to the world. So I shared with David, got right up to the end of the train, and he, uh, he said he would think about it. I gave him some numbers of people to call, and, and I don't know where he is and what's going on at this point. But, but in light of that, I'm going to ask you to pray for three things today, three prayer requests, and then we'll, we'll pray here. First, I would ask you to pray for David. He heard the message. He's in bondage. Let's pray that God would set him free. Second, I would ask you to pray for yourself, that you would understand how the gospel is to change us as we study this book of Titus. And thirdly, I would ask you to pray for our church, that we would be established, and this year we would stand strong together in the freedom of the gospel, and that we'd offer a counter-message to the world, a message where they could be set free. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the glorious gospel, the freedom that comes from the gospel. I thank you that we are ambassadors of the message of reconciliation to the world. Lord, I thank you for the freedom that comes in godliness. That godliness isn't a bondage, it's a freedom. I thank you that the knowledge of the truth sets us free. That you work in our lives and cause us to trust in you and connect us to life. God, all these truths are so much a part of this book. I pray, God, that they would 
impact our lives. And as we begin this journey together studying Titus, may it transform us. And may our church stand strong in the gospel. Let that be what we're known for. Salt and light, freedom, the glory of Jesus. Lord, I pray for David, wherever he is, whatever he's doing, God, would the, the truth of the gospel pierce through that, that hard heart, that heart that, that wants to live in the moment, Lord. Show him his pain so that he could see his freedom in you. God, may we all have opportunities to share. And may we bring this glorious message of the gospel wherever we go. Prepare us, Lord, to be used by you. In Christ's name, amen.